from the studio in Sun City, Arizona Boomer Radio presents Wealth DNA with Ron the Ronald Naraki. Wealth DNA gives you insights and methods for increasing your net worth. Ron's experience dealing with local and international markets give him insights that can be valuable to any investor. Now here's the host of the show, Ron Naraki. Hello and welcome to the Wealth DNA Radio Show. We're honored that you're joining us today. Today's show will be a little more relaxed paced than other shows, so I certainly welcome your questions, comments, and answers to the questions that I've posed in the posting of this show. The topic today is a very personal one, since you, yes, yes, you, I'm not talking to somebody else, you are the recipient of a $100,000 windfall. And our other listeners, and I certainly want to know how you plan to spend or invest that money. So gather your thoughts, figure out what you're going to do with this windfall as we cover some other topics that I've been dealing with since our last show, and hopefully you'll find them very useful as well. Even though we're taking a pause today in our series on alternative investments, we certainly need to factor those alternative investments into our discussion. You need to consider them in your investment decisions. As we cover each of the key steps you should take in shaping your final decision because this is your money, I'll remind you of past shows you want to review. And of course, those shows are available in our archive. Now, as I often do, I'd like to put your dilemma of what to do with that windfall in a context, and specifically kind of the economy, geopolitical tapestry, relative level of the various markets, and most importantly, the Ten Commandments of Investing. After all, if something sounds like a good idea, but it violates one or more of the commandments of investing, it's probably not such a good idea. Now, the other reason we have to put it in context is if somebody is listening today, whether live or later today or later this week in the archive, those economic and geopolitical factors and and the levels of the markets will be the same when they're listening. But if somebody listens to the archive five years from now or 20 years from now, the situation will be very different. So if they use these same questions as a guideline, they need to put it in the new context. So let's start with that geopolitical tapestry. I always like the image of the tapestry or that all-inclusive background when talking about international and the political issues. And one aspect can't be analyzed all by itself. You see, they're all interwoven in that tapestry. Well, the thing that's been in the news a lot is an attack on or war in Syria seems very unlikely now, and that's a relief for many people. So that is off of the table. But on the other hand, ah, why is that an issue? Well, something of that sort is an uncertainty. You see, the markets hate uncertainties. Now, as I was starting to say, on the other hand, the U.S. president has ceded the U.S. influence in the Middle East. That will have risks and future repercussions in in that future. We really don't know what they are yet, but certainly a move like that, a change in who influences it, can change the balance. And the question is, will Russia and even China use this occasion to further cement their influence or even control over the Middle East and Africa? And if you haven't noticed them moving in and putting, exerting more and more influence and control, then you're not watching. 
And none of us really know for sure what we'll do, what they'll do, excuse me, only time will tell. But if you ask me to take a position on it, I would say it would be far more likely that they will take advantage of the time when the U.S. blinked. Then to continue as if nothing changed. In other words, they will take advantage of the situation. Now, on the U.S. domestic front, let's take a look at the uh, U.S., which is still one of the major, the largest economy. The government is facing the debt ceiling again. And in about a week from today, they'll be at the risk of shutting down the government. So there are heated discussions about alternatives to avert that shutdown. Well, the politics this time are getting nastier. And hearing a talk by our president, the administration no longer refers to those opposing their initiatives as Republicans, which they generally did. It's now a faction. And to me, that term faction has a lot more negative connotation compared to other terms like party, segment, portion of the population, or a group. So I turn to the official definition, definition, which is a faction is a small, organized, dissenting group within a larger one. So I guess the party that has 45% or so of the seats in government is a small group. Now, certainly our role here on Wealth DNA Radio's show is not to share our political views, but it sure seems the negotiations are looking more like a food fight than grown men and women discussing the pros and cons of each alternative. And I don't know what your experience is with food fights, but however they end, there are always messes to clean up after food fights. All right, how about the economy? Well, Europe is gradually moving out of the second dip of their recession, and unlike other parts of the world, Europe actually did go through a second dip. And the U.S. is officially in its fifth year of recovery. And by the way, most recoveries last five to six years. So you could say that the U.S. is closer to the end of the economic cycle than to the beginning. On the other hand, the pace of recovery is so anemic that we're nowhere near the optimism or euphoria that usually precedes a recession. You see, there have been two key economic issues I've been wrestling with. I strongly believed I knew the answer. The problem is I didn't have the data available to prove my points. Well, since our last show, I'm happy to say I have found the data and can now share with you some important facts that will affect the economy in the next three to five years. And those listening to the archive can test whether I'm right. Now, the first question that's been on my mind is whether the increasing interest rates will kill the recovery of the housing market. You see, there have been a major uptick, but interest rates have been extremely low. Now, if you read any article on this topic or listen to some newscast, you'll hear statements like this. Home starts were up despite the increase in mortgage rates. Or another statement might be, we're in another housing bubble driven by low interest rates. So the implication of those statements you'll hear or read is that the journalist writing or talking about this topic, has researched past historical events, and they indicate that housing prices decrease as interest rates rise. I mean, without that assumption, you wouldn't make those statements. Well, no, that is just conventional wisdom. 
You see, it's driven by a simplistic supply demand argument, which goes something like this, which sounds very logical. As interest rates rise, fewer people will be able to qualify for a mortgage on the house they want to buy, and thus demand will decrease and prices will follow. Okay? Sound like a reasonable argument? Well, with the help of Michael Orr, who's been a guest on this show in the past, I now have the data that shows there's no meaningful correlation between interest rates and housing prices. If anything, there are some times in history, and for those of you a few gray hairs, you might remember the 1970s when prices rose as interest rates rose. Similarly, in the early 2000s, as housing prices rose, demand increased. And during the Great Recession, as housing prices declined, demand also de uh, declined. So what you would expect in affordability and the relationships doesn't work that way in reality. So clearly this simple supply-demand or affordability argument just doesn't hold much water when you analyze historical data. But the journalists don't seem to care. As with all markets, emotions and perception play a much stronger role. You see, as prices rise or interest rates rise, more and more people would like to own a home field they need to buy now while they still can. They may never be able to do it in the future if those increases continue. So for many people, that reaction is indeed accurate. If they don't buy soon, they won't be able to afford in the future. They should not expect interest rates to be lower or housing prices to be lower anytime in the near future. So buying now is better than waiting, and that's driving demand. Now, while analyzing this affordability data, it became very clear that this talk of a bubble was garbage. You see, we're nowhere near a housing bubble. At the time of the last bubble, the mortgage payment to buy a home, and I'm looking in the Phoenix area, which is uh, one that has moved more than other markets, but nonetheless representative. So if you looked at the bubble time period, the mortgage payment, if you're going to buy the median home at those mortgage rates that existed at the time, your mortgage payment was over $1,600. Now, in 2012, just a year ago, near the bottom, but actually after the, the bottom had already been passed, the mortgage payment on a home at the median price was under $800. Yes, less than half the monthly payment. So affordability was through the roof compared to back in 2006. Now, this year, 2013, after a dramatic increase in prices and a significant increase in interest rates, that mortgage payment, drumroll please, has gone up to $850, still far below that time during the great uh, bubble, if you will. Since wages haven't decreased very significantly, if at all, far more people can afford homes today than they could seven years ago. And it's that time, seven years ago, people were standing in line to buy homes. Where is this pricing logic? So when you read an article or hear some of this from a newscaster, recall what Mark Twain told us. If you don't read the newspaper, you're uninformed. If you read the newspaper, you're misinformed. So when doing your research on any major investment, make sure you check what you read with the experts here 
on the Wealth DNA radio show. Now, the second question I've been trying to address, where's all the money? Now, we know that U.S., Japan, and the European governments and the central banks have been printing money at an unprecedented pace. We never talked about trillions in the past. Even tracking down the exact amount printed in the U.S. where the data is pretty available has been a difficult task. Since we had programs like TARP, you know, that TARP that covers things up, several QE programs, as well as programs like Operation Twist and currency swaps. Heck, even when the accounting experts at the Federal Reserve were asked how much money was printed, they couldn't tell Congress. Now, I can estimate the total print in the U.S. has been between 2.5 and 3.0 trillion dollars. And that's over the exactly five years since the collapse of Lehman Brothers. And happy anniversary for those that remember that day just five years ago. So, 2.5 to $3 trillion was printed. And why did I mention Lehman Brothers? Well, that's when we started the TARP program. So the question is, where is all that money? $2.5 trillion is a lot, and 3 is even more. If all of it had moved into the economy, we should see an increase in GDP over those five years close to even exceeding $3 trillion. The reality is nowhere close. At best, we've seen several hundred billion dollars creep into the economy in the form of road construction, food stamps, government jobs, etc. For some time, I've been telling you on this show that banksters have not been lending. And I have data from the Federal Reserve which shows that lending dropped off a cliff after 2008 and has barely improved since then. And just this past week, I found the answer to this question. And where I found it is ironic. But before I tell you where I found it, let me share one more highlight that's been in the news this past week. That's the surprise decision by the Federal Reserve to continue their money printing and bond purchases at the rate of $85 billion per month. Now, every expert, every newscaster, every guru that tracks these things was convinced there'd be a decrease or taper in that bond buying of $10 billion or maybe even 15 But there was pretty much a consensus and therefore built into the market so that they would decrease by $10 billion. So why did the Fed decide to not slow that printing press to buy those bonds? Now, the official answer given was that they need to review additional data before decreasing those purchases. Well, interestingly, if they just reviewed the data that they have in their own databases and the beige books that they get, as I did, they would know that regardless of how much money they print, it's not trickling into the economy. Now, rather than just taking my word for it, even though I can assure you this is true, I encourage you to research the term excess reserves. Just Google the term, use Yahoo, Bing, whichever you like, or specifically use the abbreviation for the report I found. This is the one you want. Let me read that abbreviation to you. It's nine letters, E-X-C-S-R-E-S-N-S. So if you think of it, it's kind of an abbreviation for excess reserves. Now, let me repeat those letters, E-X-C-S-R-E-N-S, sorry, S-N-S, so the last three letters, S-N-S. That's the name of the data series used in the report I found, and guess where I found it? On the Federal Reserve's own system. That system is called FRED. 
Now, I didn't check what FRED stands for. It's probably an acronym for Federal Reserve Empirical Data or something sophisticated of that sort. When you look at that graph of data, uh, that, that graph of that data series, you'll see the entire period from 1985 through 2008, five years ago, the excess reserves were so close to zero you could assume somebody's bonus at each bank was dependent on making sure they have no less but no more reserves than required. So in essence, if they were required to carry a billion dollars, they kept one billion dollars, plus or minus a dollar. Absolutely perfect. So again, it seems like somebody was bonused on this. Always excess reserves were zero the entire period. Since exactly five years ago, we see excess reserves heading up year after year in a jagged but steep increase. So the amount of money that banks now hold above and beyond the required reserves is $2.2 trillion. So now we know where the vast majority of the printed money has gone. It's sitting on the bank's books as excess reserves. Hopefully the banks have adjusted that bonus system for the person who is supposed to maintain ex excess reserves at zero. If not, it's likely all of those people have been fired. Now, you might be asking what motivation banksters would have to hold such large amounts of excess reserves. The answer is twofold. A, they earn an interest rate on those reserves higher than the interest rate they pay to borrow money from the Fed, which is essentially zero today. So you see, they're guaranteed to make money and take no risk. It's only unfortunate that you and I don't get such a good deal. Now, with interest rates on loans at only 3 or 4 or 5% as they've been, those banksters were not motivated to make loans. We've talked about that on this show. So now you know something. I was excited to find the answer to the question, where's the money? But by the way, that's not the end of the story. Now that we know where that money is, that $2.2 trillion, we can figure out what's likely to happen over the next three to five years, and that's the point I'm getting at. Recall the prediction made on this show several times. As interest rates rise, banksters will be more likely to start lending. And that seemed counterintuitive, right? Well, no, not at all. If they make more money at higher interest rates, they're more likely to do it. And by the way, I have a chart that shows their inclination to lend is increasing recently. And guess what? The Federal Reserve provides that data. When banks start to lend some portion of that $2.2 or maybe even all of it, there's a multiplier effect. Since the loans they make can be used as collateral to borrow more money from the Fed, that bank lending will be able to put over $16 trillion into the economy. And even if only half of that money flowed into the economy, can you imagine what $8 trillion flowing into the economy will do? It will lead to very high inflation. Now, as an investor, do you know any ways to make money if you had an additional $100 or $1,000 or $100,000? Oh, coincidentally, that happens to be our topic today. But I've heard there are no such things as a coincidence. Now, during our series of shows on OPM, we talked about the benefits of borrowing cheap money from the banks and investing it for higher returns. And here's a hint. That series of shows started in July of 2011. You might want to look it up. Now, before we talk about the markets, today is September 23rd. 
2013. It is 9.19 a.m. in Arizona on the West Coast, 12.19 p.m. on the West Coast, on, uh, on uh, the U.S. Coast everywhere, not just Arizona. And on the East Coast, it's 18. Oh, sorry. Let's try it again. In continental Europe, it's 18.19. So East Coast would be uh, 19 minutes after noon. Get my numbers right here, West Coast and Arizona, 919. It's the only day I ever like it. We'll do everything possible to make it a good one. You're listening to the Wealth DNA Radio Show. I'm your host, Ron Naraki. This show airs every second and fourth Monday. It's 9 a.m. in Arizona. Now, I certainly hope you can join us each time we are, but if you miss a show like any of the past shows we'll mention today, you can find them on the archives. Just go to Wealth DNA. US, where we list each of the shows, both upcoming and archived. Now, we welcome your comments, questions, and answers during this show. Use the chat window below the radio player, or you can call in, and our producer will put you through. The call-in number, 917-388-4162, which is also shown at the top of the screen. Now, the U.S. equity markets, after the 26th new record high last week, are off to a negative start. Asia was mixed with a big range of up-and-down movements. Europe was just closed down about a half a percent, and Brazil is up slightly. Now, given our topic today, I should add that the 10-year Treasury bills are currently yielding 2.75%. Now, for those of you who track this important indicator, since it tends to drive mortgage rates and mortgage um, home equity loans, and is up dramatically from its low of 1.43 on July 25th. So let me repeat that. We are now at 2.75. The low, July 25th, 2012, was 1.43. And we're down slightly from the recent high of 2.98% on September 5th, just a few weeks ago. Before we hear what you plan to do with that money, because remember, you're on the hot spot today, let's talk about the financial markets and start that discussion with the bond market. You see, I received a chart that shows interest rates on long-term U.S. government bonds for the last 222 years. Now, none of us have been around that long, so the chart is helpful to see that long-term perspective. The average interest rate over that long period was 5.1%. Contrast that to today at 2.75. It shows that generally bond yield cycles are a full generation in length. So they tend to move in one direction for 20 or 30 years before reversing. Incidentally, when interest rates reach their highest levels, they tend to reverse fairly quickly. Whereas the reversal after a long period of decline tends to be more gradual. Again, some interesting findings from this long-term chart. Now, important on bonds to recall the bond teeter-totter we occasionally talk about. On one side of the teeter-totter, uh, or of the, of the fulcrum, if you will, at bond uh, interest rates. On the other side are bond prices. So for the last 35 years, interest rates have been declining, which so that side was going down, which meant the other side, the bond prices, have been rising. For those of you who have held bonds as part of your portfolio the last 35 years, congratulations. You've had a steadily appreciating asset in your portfolio. And as I just mentioned, in the middle of 2012, that interest rate decline seems to have ended. If it did, we're not certain yet, then mark July 25, 2012, 
as an important day in your financial calendar. It may have been the bottom of the interest rate cycle. Now, based on past history, we can expect a gradual change to increasing rates, which might take three to five years of transition. So for the last year, maybe, it's been slowly drifting downward and then flattening and then heading up, and then 20 or 30 years of increasing rates if history repeats itself. So if you've been feeling good about those bonds you held, it's very likely those good times are over. Soon you'll refer to them as the good old days. Now, how about the stock market? Where is it? Well, it's steadily climbed for 4.5 years, four and a half years since the bottom. Well, these bull markets generally last three to five years. So we're very likely much closer to the end of that up market than we are to the beginning. And remember, I'm not allowed to tell you exactly when it will end. Now, I won't make any general comments about the Ten Commandments investing at this point. After we talk through each alternative today, we'll check what the commandments tell us you should or should not do. Now, I realize we haven't covered all of the commandments on the show yet. We covered the first two in 2011 and the third in January of 2012. You can certainly expect we'll have at least seven more shows on those commandments. And no, you won't have to wait until the book is published. Now, as I mentioned at the beginning of the show, I'd like you to put yourself in the situation of having received a $100,000 windfall. And I encourage you to call in and share your plans for that money. Or use the chat window below the radio player to enter your comments or answers. So what do you plan to do with that money? Now, it's less important to know how or why we receive that windfall, but we do need to talk about the tax consequences of each. Throughout the show, I'll be using the example of a person I was talking to recently about receiving their share of an inheritance from one of our investors who passed away. I'll use $100,000 as a nice round number, but since I've been investing that money in private mortgage loans for them throughout the probate process, their share will be quite a bit higher. Now, if the windfall you're receiving, like this person's, is from an inheritance, whether from probate, inheriting a Roth IRA, or from a trust, it will be tax-free. Virtually any other windfall, including bonuses, gambling winnings, lotteries, and even a traditional IRA that you inherit, and that's an important one inheritance that you do have to worry about, a traditional IRA will be taxable. Now, the inherited IRA has specific rules and an ability to defer the receipt of the money for a long period of time, and thus spreading the tax bite a little each year. For these taxable windfalls, I highly suggest you try to put the maximum amount of money you earned this year into a 401k or IRA to reduce the taxes you pay. And again, they don't know which dollars are which as long as their earned income put it in to the 401k or an IRA because you will have a tax bite. So maybe we should consider the first step of this question process as determining um, what the tax impact would be uh, with that windfall. Even in the case of lottery winnings, where they'll withhold some amount for taxes, you still need to estimate how much your actual tax will be for the year before completing this decision process we'll go through today on whether to spend or invest the money. 
Now, if you chose to spend it, for example, or if you invested all of it in illiquid investments, you might have a problem next year when filing your tax return, and you learn you don't have the cash available to pay the additional tax bill. So it's important to know what will the actual taxes be. Now, the next step that I've mentioned several times in the show, but probably the most commonly overlooked investment that should be the first investment you make. Now, let me ask you and other experienced listeners another chance to use the chat window here. What is the investment with the highest return and has no risk? Go ahead and give me your answer in the chat window. And if you have the wrong answer, I won't share your name if you're logged in. But I will give you full credit if you have the right answer. Incidentally, in that wording, I just gave you a subtle hint. Let me repeat the question. What is the investment with the highest return and has no risk? Now, what makes this question so difficult is so often we say that all investments have risk. And yet I'm saying there is an investment out there, pays a very high return, I can almost say a double-digit return that has no risk. What is that answer? Well, while you think of that answer, let me remind our listeners you're tuned to the Wealth DNA Radio Show. I'm your host, Ron Naraki, and I look forward to you joining us every second and fourth Monday. Now, if you've missed some of the prior shows, like the ones we already mentioned today, or if you want to re-listen to them, we maintain an archive of shows on wealthdna.us. If you'd like to get an email reminder of the shows, you can do one of two things or both. Just send an email to me, ron at wealthdna.us. We'll keep you posted about future shows and events. Or in the upper left-hand side of the screen, just under the Boomer and the Bays picture, there is a follow button. Just click that follow button to keep you informed of the great shows on the Boomer and the Babe Network. Now, a reminder, during the radio show, we welcome you, our listeners, to ask questions. The easiest is to start a chat in the area below the radio player or call in 917-388-4162. Our topic today is you got a $100,000 windfall. So each of our listeners and I want to know what your plans are for that money. Let's check the chat window. For any responses, what is the investment with the highest re- return and no risk? Huh. Tougher than you thought. Well, you're ready for the answer and ready to have that V8 moment where you slap your forehead and say, Ooh, I knew that. The answer to the best investment available. I bet I don't have a drum roll now. Pay off any high-interest credit cards. That's the answer. Pay off any high-interest credit cards. Oh, Now, you probably remember my mentioning that in the past, don't you? Those credit cards are likely charging you 15 to 30% interest annually, so any balances you don't pay off each month are putting you further into debt for the next month, kind of like Johnny Cash's song. It's not until after you've set aside money for the taxes due and paid off those high-interest credit cards you should even consider spending some of that windfall. Now, if you check the books and magazines and articles, there are a lot of them that suggest you should give yourself small rewards. That's a good idea, although I'd argue this windfall, unless it happened to be a bonus for outstanding work, doesn't in itself justify a reward. If there are purchases you really need to make, you notice I didn't say that you really want, I said you need, so if there are those purchases and you've been deferring them because of the lack of funds, then it might be the appropriate use of some of the windfall for that purpose. Now, the person I've been talking to will be using some of the money for new kitchen cabinets 
and new carpeting in a home they recently purchased. Given those are investments in an asset as opposed to just expenses, I wouldn't try to talk them out of it. I would, however, discourage you if you're the type of person that wants to spend that money on toys, and specifically toys that depreciate in value. Examples, bigger television, a new cell phone, unless you don't have one, you really need one to run your business, or a new car, even though your current one is perfectly adequate. All of those toys eventually end up for sale, maybe even in a garage sale or donated to a charity several years from now. So as you can guess, my preference is you would invest that money and at most use the earnings for your investments for spending. For those of you who agree that investing as much of that windfall as possible is the best strategy, the key question you're likely asking is, what am I invested in? Well, next step in this logical process to review your investment pyramid. In our archive, you'll find a show on that topic and even a downloadable file depicting the pyramid. And that was back in November of 2012. Now, don't confuse the investment pyramid with a pyramid scheme where your money is used to pay prior victims. And yes, of course, most national pension or national social security schemes operate just like those pyramid schemes. But recall, we're talking not about those. We're talking about the investment pyramid where the bottom and largest levels are liquid and safe investments, the second level being income-generating investments like bonds and low-risk private mortgage loans, etc. So I can't give a general answer that applies to all listeners, but I can give you the background of the person I'm talking to. They do have a reasonably strong base to their pyramid with the appropriate insurance and cash in addition to their retirement income, which is sufficient to cover their living expenses. The remainder of their investments are all in bonds and stocks, and what most financial advisors would consider an age-appropriate allocation, which means a heavier allocation to fixed income versus stocks, since they are at retirement age. This particular person's inclination was to take the additional windfall and just add it to that portfolio of bonds and stocks, with the rationale that the investment advisors managed it pretty well in the past. And with, with the stories you read in the newspaper, you shouldn't, and I certainly wouldn't, take this person's word for it without a few extra questions. So, for the rest of the show, I'd like you to walk through a series of questions that I'd like to pose to them to help them reach the right decision on how to allocate those funds. And these apply to you, the winner of the windfall. The first question I would ask, you say this advisor has done well in the past. Have you indeed tracked their performance against any benchmark like the S&P 500 or at least know their annual return they've achieved? As we've talked about in prior shows, and specifically our show on September 26, 2011, which was titled, How Are You Doing?, and our show on January 24th, 2011, titled Smart Goals. In those shows, we talked about the needs for measuring the performance of your portfolio on a regular basis. My preference is you do that analysis twice a year. Now, for someone like this particular person, where the money is generally held in one account with periodic additions or occasional withdrawals, they should have a separate spreadsheet which tracks the total value each month and accounts for any amounts they added or withdrew during that month. 
Now, the trick to properly setting up that spreadsheet and properly measuring the performance is to assume you're investing in some sort of investment fund or mutual fund in the U.S. On the very first day you start tracking, assume you acquired units in this fund at $10 per share. Then, as the portfolio value increases or decreases, this unit price is rising or falling. The number of units you own doesn't change when the market changes. But when you add or withdraw money, you increase or decrease the number of units you own. And, of course, that's the amount that you withdrew or put in divided by the most recent unit price. Now, if you want to be even more accurate, use the average unit price between the prior month and the next month. Now, I really wish I had time to put together a sample spreadsheet and have it available to our listeners. I will put it back on my to-do list. Maybe one of my assistants can help me add the S&P 500 values each month, which would help you then track against at least that as a benchmark. But as you think through the logic, it really isn't difficult to put together a spreadsheet for your specific scenario. Just keep in mind that the advisor's performance is measured by the change in unit price over the last five years or over 10 years. You do, If you do add a benchmark like the S&P 500, you can compare their performance against that unmanaged S&P 500. Now, there are really two major benefits. So here I'm trying to sell you on doing this for developing this spreadsheet and to track this performance. So here are the benefits. Number one, you know the answer to the question, how is your portfolio doing? Number two is you stop influencing your actions by perceptions, and you, f- you act based on facts. Much like the articles I mentioned earlier, where journalists assume that higher interest rates will lead to lower housing prices, but the facts dispute that assumption. See, most investors will learn that after all the expenses, even after this fabulous four-and-a-half-year bull market and 35-year bull market in bonds, their 10-year or even five-year portfolio performance is in the 5 to 6% range. So even though the stock market has more than doubled in the last four-and-a-half years, their portfolio has risen 25 to 40%. If indeed the long-term performance of your portfolio is in that 5 to 6% range or maybe even lower, you can start questioning what you're doing to, to what you can do and should be doing to increase that return. Now, contrast that reality, that actual measure to your perception that your portfolio is increasing probably 10% per year. And the reason is one of those years your investment advisor says, look, your portfolio has gone up 10% this year, and you've assumed it's happened year after year. Now, certainly most of you have heard about what we get when we dissect the word assume. It makes an ass out of you and me. So stop assuming. Start measuring. Now, the second question I'd like to pose to this individual is how does this windfall fit in your needs for income during your life? A very important question. And I'll give four choices. It could be somewhere in between. Is it needed for income today? B, will it be needed for income in the future? C, will it only be needed if there's a major health or aging issue? So in other words, you want to tuck it away for a rainy day? Or D, do you plan this money as something you'll pass on to your heirs? So you see, the way we invest that money will be dramatically different depending on that answer. For example, if you don't need the money during your lifetime, you plan to pass it on to your heirs, you'd want to invest 
in assets with growth potential like stocks, managed futures, a direct investment in real estate, or startup ventures. Also, if you have earned income, it might make sense to put as much as possible into a Roth IRA so it can be inherited tax-free by your heirs. The person I've been talking to has a need for some additional current income, so I'll factor that into my recommendation. The third question, the vast majority of your portfolio is in bonds, okay, her portfolio in this case. Is this a good time to increase your exposure to bonds? Well, just a few minutes earlier, I mentioned that we have a 35-year bull market in bonds, and it appears that on July 25th of 2012, that bull market ended. So what has been helpful to that person's portfolio, like a tailwind, will now be like a headwind and decrease their returns every year. So if their portfolio performance, the actual numbers, were 5% annually, they might want to adjust their expectations to 4% and any increase in the amount of exposure they have to bonds would actually make it worse. So I would re definitely recommend they do not add to the bond portion of that portfolio. I might go a step further and tell them to either exit all or some of those bonds and at least shorten the duration to three years or less, or any that they um, do on any that they do have. So the bonds should be shortened or just get out. If you're not sure, maybe take out 20%, 50%, 60%, but they will be hurting your performance in the next few years. And that next few might be 20 or 30, as I mentioned. Now, since the next largest portion of their portfolio is in stocks, my fourth question would be whether this is a good time to increase your exposure to the stock market. We've been in a four-and-a-half-year bull market, which makes it one of the longer bull markets in history, and thus the likelihood of decline is far higher than the likelihood of further increases. Now, I don't believe this is a good time to be adding to your equity holdings, but we need to dig a little deeper with a few more questions. Now, very important note here, I'm not necessarily suggesting decreasing this allocation of equities. There just may be a better mix of equities in the portfolio. So the fifth and related question, is some of your portfolio in gold or other precious metals? If less than 5% of your total portfolio, I'd certainly recommend increasing that exposure to 5 to 10%. And given the low level of precious metals prices recently, this might turn out to be an excellent time to be buying them. And as you recall, we had Jack Bass on recently talking about his optimism. I certainly have accumulated a large percentage of my portfolio in gold and silver with a little palladium and platinum thrown in as well. Now, the sixth question, again, related to the equity portion of the portfolio. Is a portion of your portfolio in income-generating equities such as REITs and MLPs? Now, REITs, Real Estate Investment Trusts, we haven't talked about on this show yet, but we will and MLPs, or Master Limited Partnerships, we covered on our show with Jason Slade on January 28, 2013. Although we haven't talked about these REITs, you know we will. You see, I'm very bullish on residential real estate, and certainly have some of that bullishness will transfer to the commercial sector where REITs invest. And I do believe that both REITs and MLPs are far better than owning bonds for people who want income. So allocating some of that equity portion of the portfolio to these investments would be a good idea. 
as part of my recommendation. Now, the seventh question only relates to someone who's 55 or older. If the financial markets, namely stocks and bonds, declined dramatically in value, let's say as they did in 2008 or 2000, would you have sufficient income for living expenses to be able to avoid selling some of those assets at that awful time? Now, if you need, if your need, excuse me, if your need for income is higher than all of your um, income sources, including the interest and dividend from your portfolio, you might want to consider using the windfall to invest in an annuity. We haven't covered annuities on this show yet, so you can be sure we will, and it's on our agenda for future shows. There are many types of annuities and many less than reputable annuity salesmen, so this requires extensive research, research on annuities and on the salespeople. Now, Research in um, uh, researching these is part of my recommendation, by the way. Now, annuities will not provide you with income exceeding that of a well-diversified and balanced portfolio, but they do provide guaranteed income. And keep in mind that guarantee is subject to the creditworthiness of the insurers, so you want to stick with A or A-plus or even better rated insurance companies. Now, incidentally, for the person I've been talking to, I suggest that they do some research on the payments they would receive from an annuity and reminded them at the time of their death the value of that annuity will be zero. There will be no principal value to pass on to their heirs as there would be with almost any other investment. Number eight question. If your portfolio is diversified with at least 5 to 10% in alternative investments, and in this group, I include a variety of topics that we've covered, foreign currencies, angel investments, venture capital, hedge funds, direct investments in real estate, managed futures, and commodities. If not, this might be the best place to allocate your windfall. I would go a step further and suggest maybe even some of the funds currently invested in bonds should be shifted to alternative investments. Ninth question. Which alternative investments would make sense given the size of your overall portfolio, your investment pyramid structure, and your need for income? Now, obviously, this answer is all over the map. Dramatic difference for each of our listeners, so I'll focus on my, recommend, my recommendations on the person I've been talking to, the size of their portfolio, and their investment temperament. Indicate that the investments in the majority of these alternative investments would not be appropriate. They don't bring you income, they're not very liquid, and they do have some risk. And essentially, this person does not need a fourth level to their investment. <laughs> I'd also recommend the direct investment in, I wouldn't, excuse me, I would not recommend a direct investment in real estate ownership for them, even though it could bring income. But I would suggest, and even strongly recommend, the safest grade of private mortgage loans or mortgage notes. We'll talk more about that shortly. Now, this might also be a good time to tell listeners who just tuned in, you're listening to the Wealth DNA Radio Show. I'm your host, Ron Naraki. If you missed the earlier part of the show, you can listen to the earlier portion on the archive. Or if you missed prior shows, you can find them on the archives too. WealthDNA.us. So www.wealthdna.us. Today, our topic is you got a $100,000 rainfall. And each of our listeners and I want to know how you plan to spend or invest that money. 
we've been going through a framework of questions you need to ask yourself or your financial advisor should be asking for you to best decide how to allocate that money. Now, before I pull together my overall recommendation for this person, the tenth question we need to ask is whether the various comments I've made and, and partial recommendations I've already hinted at, are they consistent with the Ten Commandments of Investing? Now, I clearly didn't recommend violating the First Commandment by adding to their allocation to bonds or stocks at what might turn out to be near the peak of both of those markets. I also factored in the Second Commandment when I said the majority of alternative investments would not be a fit for their temperament. Now, I won't go down the entire list of commandments, but let me highlight a few important ones I factored into my recommendations. The Fifth Commandment is to diversify. And I certainly want them to diversify beyond their concentration in bonds and stocks, specifically adding an annuity or private mortgage loans as well as precious metals. The Ninth Commandment tells us you should focus on equities and long term, so I'm not suggesting they decrease their equity exposure, although I'm not suggesting they increase that exposure at this time but they should reallocate some of that equity exposure to precious metals and bond substitutes like REITs and MLPs. So let me put my recommendations together based on the questions we've covered in this show, and I'll include the next question. And you can use this as a pretty good checklist. So we're going to go through numbers 1 through 11 in total, and uh, you might want to make this a checklist for you. Maybe eventually we'll add it as an attachment to this show. And if I did miss a key question, or um, you think of one that would have been appropriate either for this listener or for you, I'm sure one of our listeners or you will let us know. Please let me know. Anyway, the first, set aside the amount of money you'll need to pay income taxes. Now, again, in this particular person's case, the windfall is tax-free since it's inheritance, so it's a non-issue. But that is the first step or question. How much money do I need to set aside? The second is, do I have any high-interest credit cards that need to be paid off? Again, in their case, they pay them off monthly, so it's not an issue. Third, analyze your current investment pyramid. Is there a need to strengthen the first or second level, or is there an opportunity to build the third or fourth level? In their case, they have a sound investment pyramid and no fourth level, and it, for, probably for them it doesn't make sense to add those higher risk, higher return investments at this point. Fourth is to analyze the returns on your portfolio for the last 10 years or even longer. So just set up a spreadsheet with the initial unit value of your personal fund that you're investing in with that particular advisor at $10 per unit. I would suggest starting your analysis at the beginning of 2012 or even better at the beginning of 2000. And remember to factor in your withdrawals and additions each month. Number five, when do you need the income from this windfall? And I provide a list of four alternatives. In their case, they would like to have some additional income now and have sufficient assets to continue to generate income in the future. This person also has longevity in their family, which makes them a candidate for annuities. Now, given the current level of the bond market, is this a good time to add bonds? This is the sixth question. My recommendation is to not add exposure to the bonds. To the contrary, consider, consider even reducing or dramatically reducing their exposure to bonds, or at least decrease the duration to three years. Seventh, 
given the current level of the stock market, is this a good time to add stocks? My recommendation is not to add, although, again, I didn't suggest decreasing. But I will recommend a reallocation within the stock portion. Number eight, do you have an exposure to precious metals, which I think everyone should? I would recommend they allocate at least 10% of the stock portion of their portfolio to precious metals, and maybe even more, given how low the prices are. Number nine, do you have an exposure to MLPs and REITs? That's the Master Limited Partnerships and Real Estate Investment Trusts. I would recommend they allocate at least 10%, again, of that stock portion to each MLPs and REITs. They will provide a great alternative to bonds, and they are still appreciating assets. If you're over the age of 55, do you have one or more annuities? In their case, I recommend they investigate the various annuities available with ratings of A or better and what distribution they'll provide for their lifetime. Now, if that distribution, here's a key point, if that distribution is less than the current mortgage rates, and where are mortgage rates? About 4.5%, then I would not recommend buying an annuity. Why the mortgage rate? We'll cover that in a minute or two. Number 11. Would it make sense to invest the remaining portion of your portfolio, or of your windfall, excuse me, in alternative investments? In their case, I suggest they invest their windfall plus any portion of their portfolio that they decreased in bonds into the highest quality private mortgage loans or performing mortgage notes. You see, these notes will provide them income at least 1% or more accurately for us investors, 100 basis points, above the current mortgage rate. And as I mentioned, September of 2013, mortgage rates are 4.5%. So a $100,000 private mortgage note will pay them at least $450 per month, which, by the way, that amount will increase as those notes mature and they invest in notes at higher interest rates in the future. The main advantage over annuities is they will get a similar or higher distribution but it's strictly from the income. Their principal value stays intact. So at the time of their death, the original principal value, let's say it was the full 100000 will be passed on to their heirs. Incidentally, one of the key reasons the inheritance uh, is as large as it is, I alluded to earlier, is due to the fact that our investor has his money in private mortgage loans with provided sufficient income to live a high-quality retirement home and leave the principal to his heirs. Let me summarize some of these uh, points and wrap up here. We've covered a lot of aspects of investing in portfolio allocation while talking about your windfall. And hopefully this is a show when you'll, refer, you'll use when you, and refer back to it when you have an inheritance or other major windfall. And keep in mind, at the time, what that happens, the answer to the various questions about the economy, geopolitical tapestry, and the level of financial markets will be different. But the sequence of questions, the 11 we just had, that you need to ask yourself and the analysis you have to do will be identical. Now, if your situation is unusual, maybe we'll do another show about your windfall and how to invest it. There's nothing like real case studies to help our listeners fine-tune their own portfolio. And who knows? Maybe we'll realize there was another step we missed. 
I'm hoping a very important takeaway for you is the answer to these uh, two key questions. Will rising interest rates kill the housing recovery? And where's all the money? And remember, you heard the answers first right here on Wealth DNA Radio. One of the underlying points in this example we covered, which I didn't specifically emphasize, but a very key consideration for every investor, each of us needs a combination of income as well as growth. That balance will be different for each investor, and for the person we were discussing, they have a stronger need for income today than assets for passing on to their heirs. Now, that said, I would never recommend they invest in such a way that they run out of money or they take too much income so that they continue to be able to generate income as they get older. The recommendations I made will provide them a strong income now and sufficient growth for future income. And I'm confident it will be a, a, a fairly higher, well, uh, again, depending on what the returns are, which are they haven't measured, but I'm confident this will increase their returns versus continuing that current portfolio allocation to bonds and stocks. Now, regular listeners to the Wealth DNA Radio Show know that our objective here is to help a million people become millionaires, and I cer- certainly hope the person we've been talking about, as well as you, become among those millionaires or multi-millionaires by learning from my experience as well as our many talented guests who bring their experience. And remember, one of the best ways to increase your wealth is to tune into the show twice a month. We'll share the investment fundamentals, some great ideas, and help diversify and grow your portfolio. On our next shows, we'll have experts on commodities, Forex trading, and a guest to share some insights on the education most financial advisors and financial planners get. The next Wealth DNA Radio show will be the second Monday of October. That's October 14th, 9 a.m. Arizona, same place and same time. And by then, I need to have my personal tax return ready for 2012. Still a lot of work to do in a complicated investment business. Now, as soon as we have a lineup of guests and topics, you'll be able to find them on www.wealthdna.us, where you'll find the archive of past shows. If you have some comments on today's show, suggestions, additional questions, or if you haven't received my emails reminding you about the show, just send me an email, ron at wealthdna.us. We'll keep you posted about your future shows and events. Happy investing, and I sure hope it includes a major windfall. DNA with Ron Naraki on Arizona Boomer Radio. Arizona Boomer Radio is produced by the Boomer and the Babe Incorporated and can be heard Monday through Friday. You can sign up for their online magazine at boomerandthebabe.com. To reach the Boomer and the Babe, email host at boomerandthebabe.com or friend them on facebook.com slash boomerandbabe. And on Blog Talk, you can friend them at blogtalkradio.com slash boomerandbabe. Follow their tweets at twitter.com slash boomerandbabe. Be sure to make the second half of your life the best half of your life. And remember, at 50, you're just getting started.